You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. Good morning. Um, welcome to day... 
Dr. Colo pulls um, sort of sort of sifts a, a really rich strand out of the Gospel of John. Um, and out of the various source texts that, that inform the Johannite tradition, of which the Gospel of John is one, but not the only one, I think John's a really valuable text. I find it a very valuable text to focus on, because the more I can phrase who we are and what we do in terms of the fourth Gospel, the easier it is for me to talk to more people, because that's the text that most people have seen or heard or read. And it gives a great space to communicate with people from other um, Christian traditions, most Gnostic traditions, just about everybody who's any, you know, anybody that's got any interest in Christianity at all has read the fourth gospel. Um, and it's also a great touchstone for, for interfaith conversations because folks who come from a Sufi background are often familiar with the Gospel of John. Lots of Hindus have read the Gospel of John. Out of all the Gospels, it's the one they're most likely to have read. It's the one everyone says, you really should read John. It's pretty cool. The thing with John is it is really cool, but it's also, the more you read John, John's like a very detailed conspiracy theory. <laughs> it's got layers and interconnections. It's connected. It, it's like, you know, you're walking along the beach. I used to walk along the beach with my mum and dad when I was a kid, and, and we'd run across those balls of fishing line, you know, that, that got tangled up and screwed into a ball somewhere out at sea and then washed up with the flotsam and jetsam. And dad and I had this thing where we'd get balls of fishing line and spend hours. This is, it's good to have hobbies when you're a kid. I didn't fish. I pulled apart fishing line and unknotted things. John's a lot like a big ball of fishing line. Um, also, it's good to use to catch fish. <laughs> he said cheaply. But anyway, um, it doesn't, it's not just densely interconnected within itself, though. The Gospel of John, because of the really rich theological territory in which it was written, and the really rich time in the Christian tradition in which it was formed, um, and we, you know, uh, modern scholarship has it being formed over a fairly long period in multiple stages. And those stages are really baked into the structure of the Gospel in a very artful, very clever, very deep way, which interconnects the Gospel with a whole range of things that were going on at the time. And there's all sorts of speculation about which things were going on at the time. The speculation about is it connected to, to Greek and Pythagorean and Platonic thought? Is it connected to... There's, I've read suggestions it's connected to Mahayana Buddhism because we know there were Mahayana Buddhists in Alexandria at around the time the Gospel was being written, so it's possible there was a conversation going on there. We don't know. Um, but it's definitely connected to the really rich theological environment of first century Judaism in Palestine and Alexandria and Ephesus and, and the various sort of voices in Judaism that were happening you know, around the temple and then amongst the Jews who had chosen not to return from the exile, who stayed in Babylon, lived in Alexandria or lived elsewhere in the Hellenistic world. So it's such a, it's this arcanum of a, of a text, you know, and the more you dig, the more you find, and it's fascinating. Dr. Colo's work is really interesting to me because she takes an approach of looking at the symbols in the Gospel of John, and she has a very interesting definition of symbol, which comes from the particular school of theology she works in, and it provides a way to read the Gospel and pull out layers of the text that aren't immediately evident to an initial read. And it lends a richness to the whole text that I think helps to pull out deeper meanings that continue to resonate over and over in time. The particular meanings that she pulls out, I think, for our particular church, speak really acutely. And so I want to share some of this stuff with you. I've said to a couple of people this week, Dr. Collo has a brain like a spiral staircase. As far as I can tell, she's a deeply brilliant woman. Um, she's a Catholic nun. She's a presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary's sister. She works in Melbourne. Um, 
and she's got a, a PhD. She runs like tours in the Holy Land every year and takes people for a tour around the sort of major sites of the Old Testament and stuff. She's written two major books. The first was called God Dwells With Us, which looks at the symbol of the temple in the Gospel of John. And the second is called Dwelling in the Household of God, <coughs> which looks at the symbol of the household in the Gospel of John. Now, there's a lot of density in these two books. It's ext they're extremely complicated, and really, um, I've read them twice, and, and yes, I still don't have the whole thing in my head. And I'm not a scholar, so um, I don't have the... I can't convey to you the richness of what's in the books, and I have to do that lame thing of saying, just go read Mary Collo. She's really awesome. Um, what I can do is to try to pull out some of the themes from the book and some of the interconnections that I found really significant and to try to pass those along as a kind of a... This is a teaser for... I'm an ad for Mary Collett, basically. I'm the brochure version. <laughs> um, I'm going to take a, uh, just a sip of water, so any questions? <laughs> what is the... Do you know anything about the, the philosophical or theological tradition that she's coming out of, what her influences are? Is she... Well, she cites the people you'd expect her to cite. She cites a lot of Raymond Brown. Um, Francis Maloney, who's another Australian John Owen scholar. Um, her biggest influence in terms of the approach that she takes is Sandra Schneider's um, and her, her use of symbol, and then a bunch of other people um, in that symbol analysis tradition, but I, I don't know the names well enough to be able to... She quotes Sandra Schneider's a great deal, yeah. so that one's stuck in my head, but... Um, in terms of other theologians, I don't know enough about the schools of <laughs> the different schools of thought and theology to be able to recognise which names lie in which tradition or not. So, read Mary Collin and let me know. <laughs> um, I mean, she very much, as well as taking the symbolic approach, she's very much in that that uh, that tradition of sort of saying that the these the same tradition as Raymond Brown of saying these books are written by communities. They're the voice of a community speaking to us in the present day, and it's written within the, the living situation of that particular community at time. And what's encoded into the text of the Gospel is the, the particular dramas and concerns and interests of that particular community. They're speaking to us across time through this book in the richness of what's embedded in the book. And really, to understand what's being said in the Gospel, you've got to actually look at, well, what, what was that then? What sort of situation were they living in? What... When I read that word, what am I projecting onto it from my experience? But what were they intending, likely to be intending by that word from their experience? And so that's a lot of the sort of symbol analysis stuff that, that she gets into. So let me push on and kind of. So I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk very briefly about what um, what Dr. Collo's tradition means when they talk about symbol with a capital S in the context of the book. We, I mean, we all know the word. <laughs> we all know what it means. Um, but they, they mean something quite specific by it, and I think the, the, there's some interest in what that specific meaning is. So secondly, I'm going to talk kind of briefly about uh, the use of the symbol of the temple in the Gospel of John, which you know, you know, you know from your own reading of the work is a theme that reoccurs. There's a lot of appearances in the temple. You know that's present in the, in the work. But if you're not looking at it at the symbolic level, then you don't necessarily see quite how deeply the symbolism of the temple is sewn into the work. And I'm only going to touch that. I'm not going to go very deeply into it. Um, the third step I want to take uh, is to look at the symbol of the household and how that weaves through the gospel um, and kind of what the richness of that term yields up when you look at the living situation of people at that time. 
Um, and then the fourth step, which I forgot to put in the outline when I wrote it this morning, <laughs> is the so what step. Okay, this is all great. This is all great stuff about the Gospel of John. That's awesome. This is fantastic. And I, you know, it's, uh, it's terrific theology. But what does this actually imply for the Church of John in the 21st century? Which I think has to be our core concern. Um, and I think it implies a bunch of interesting things. Some of the things I think it implies we're, we're doing in a really rich way. And some of the things provide maybe slight challenges. Things to kind of leave as open questions and carry a bit of, you know, as a, a curious tension <laughs> over the next few years and kind of see how it unfolds. Um, I'm fond of saying that we're conducting, in the AJC, we're conducting a grand experiment. We're asking, what is the Church of John? And I think we have to stay alive to the question, what is the Church of John? I think we, we're at our best when we stay alive to the question, and I think, I think things get closed down if we think we've answered it. I don't think we've answered it. So my aspiration for us over the next 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years... <laughs> is to stay alive to the question, what is the Church of John in the 21st century and how are we continuing to bring it to life? How are we assisting in the divine self-revelation through the Church? Big goal, there you go. Nice, big one. Set the bar red high. <laughs> okay. So a symbol, in the sense that it's meant um, in this tradition, is something which connects divine to human reality. And that, that cuts to the kind of Pythagorean, really, notion of, of a symbol. So symbol in, in Greek um, is the, the throwing together of two parts. Um, and it often got used uh, to refer to that sort of simple code thing, where if you, had, if you were sending a messenger out, you know, you'd have uh, one person with one half. If you take a, a, a seal or something and break it into two pieces, one person would get one piece, one person would get the other. And then to prove that you were, that you were appropriately um, authorised, you brought the two pieces together and you could show that the piece you had matched the piece that the other person had. In, I read some stuff on, this doesn't, to connect this to kind of the, the sort of Greek history of the word, I, I read some stuff about Pythagorean clergy a, a while ago and the notion of a symbol as um, during a visionary experience dealing with one of the gods receive a whole lot of associational material, you know, animals and plants and colours and certain kinds of music, certain sorts of landscapes and so on. Um, and one of the ways in which Thurgy functions sort of as a, as a process is, is to get access to that divine communion again. It's part of it is to reconstruct those images and sensations that you received in a previous communion and that helps to re-establish the link with that particular divine power. Um, and what we now have is sort of tables of correspondences in, in the esoteric traditions. You could see as, well, <laughs> it seems to be the case that for several thousand people over a long period of time, bull always means, I don't know, <laughs> your grace? Sun. Sun? Yeah, okay. So if, I'm, if I'm talking to Apollo, bull's a good symbol. There we go. So if I visualize a bull, that's going to help me attain communion with Apollo. So symbol, like we use it in a very sort of mainstream term. You know, we talk, we talk about symbols in computer science in lots of lots of sorts of contexts. But um, symbol in that old sense meant something which connects human reality to divine reality, uh, and so that's the, the sort of eros of it, the agape of it is is it's a vehicle which stretches the human mind to transcend its limits. So a symbol is always inviting us to think beyond mundane reality, to think beyond the day-to-day, -to, -day, to think beyond the obvious, to think beyond the, the literal. 
because of that, because it's work, <laughs> because working with a symbol is work, symbols can be misunderstood. It's very easy for someone to treat a symbol as though it's a literal truth. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, that happens over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. So, so this is a, a quote at the bottom from Sandra Schneider. The task of the symbol is to make that which by nature is spiritual or transcendent and therefore sensibly unavailable in itself into subjectively available, so available to, to people between their subjectivities, by giving it a body, a sensible form. In other words, <laughs> symbols function sacramentally. They're a connection between divine and human reality. Does that make enough going along with sense? Good. I was going to add the conventional, well, conventional for us definition of a, of a sacrament is something in which one thing is seen and another is understood. Uh, so, you know, or to get more traditional, uh, uh, a visible, an outward and visible sign of, a, of an inward uh, grace. Mm. So, you know. I think what, um, what appeals to me about the way they phrase it is, is it kind of adds to that traditional formulation, the kind of sense of being stretched. Yeah. The sense that that inward reality isn't necessarily immediately known, but it's a kind of a challenge to kind of step forward into a broader understanding of it, yeah. which I think is awesome. <laughs> Pray us. <laughs> okay, so the obvious, um, the two things that, which are quite similar, but um, quite similar superficially, but I think it's interesting to understand how they're different is the distinction between a metaphor and a symbol. So in a metaphor, in, in classical rhetoric, um, a metaphor has two parts. It has the tenor and the vehicle. So in the phrase, I am the vine, the vehicle of the metaphor is the vine. That's the image you're holding in your head. And the tenor is explicitly stated, I. So I'm making an allegory between me and a vine. Everybody good? We're all cool? Right. So <laughs> when Christ is trying to be super clear, he often uses metaphor. He often introduces metaphors as ways to make a teaching point. When he's trying to be challenging, he uses a symbol. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. There's a vehicle, the temple, but the tenor isn't clear from the statement. What, what, do, you, what do you mean you can knock down the temple? He's going to knock down the temple. Quick, get a gang and stone him. He's going to knock down the temple. How is he going to do it? We don't have wrecking balls yet. Ah! <laughs> it's anachronistic. Ah! He's broken narrative conventions. Postmodern Gospel of John. <laughs> okay, so that's that's the sort of rough sketch of what a symbol is, and you you often find in um, in the sort of the, there's a narrative structure that occurs in the Gospel of John a great deal where um, someone asks someone comes to Christ with a question, and he answers with this kind of weird gnomic kind of symbolic answer, and the person goes, huh? <laughs> and 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 apparently almost deliberately misunderstands. Um, and, and, and unlike sort of Matthew, where he might go, <laughs> idiots, <laughs> he goes, hmm, and just gets more obscure. And the person goes, I, I, I understand the words you're saying. <laughs> and sometimes the person comes to a clearer understanding, and sometimes they don't, and it's always instructive. But there's a, you always get the sense in those, those pieces where you're invited into that conversation, because the person that's there isn't understanding and the symbol, I always feel that in those passages, the symbol kind of pops out of the page, and it's like Christ is saying, you get it though, don't you? Yeah, come on. You're in, you're in here with me. I mean, it's a joke on this guy, right? But, but we're in the same conversation, surely. 
Um, and it's that sense of kind of, of the symbol kind of reaching out and stretching, which is one of the characteristics of John. It's an invitation into what's going on in the gospel. So the question is, what's going on in the gospel? If you'll indulge me for a second. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the, he was with God in the beginning. For Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through Him all men might believe. He Himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, so those who believed in his name, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's the Gospel of John, pretty much. The rest of the Gospel of John is an expansion on that passage. That passage tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> if you understand what you're reading in that passage, that's the completion of the Gospel. And there's a bunch of really interesting things about it. That initial passage, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, is a really obvious connection between John 1 and Genesis 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Sorry, the Spirit of God brooded across the face of the waters. Skip the step. The interesting, one of the interesting things that Dr. Collo points out about John is that that opening passage in the prologue, that very first bit before we get to the question of John, has six strophes in it. There are six steps. Genesis is characterized by seven steps. So one of the things that's... This is a, Dr. Collo has a range of things, some of which are absolutely rock-solid awesome, and some of which you kind of go... That's a stretch, but I like the stretch. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a few things, there's a few things in, uh, in her stuff, some of which I'll, I'll, I'll allude to, but probably not, not talk about really in, in much depth, where you kind of go, wow, that's a really long bow, but I love what you're going. <laughs> and this is kind of one of them, but Genesis has seven days of creation. And that, that initial account, that initial very brief account of the creation of the world in the prologue has six steps. So perhaps what's implied is that the creation of the world isn't complete with the story of Genesis. And the whole of the Gospel of John is an account of the final and seventh step of the creation of the world. Because the creation is complete and the work of Christ is complete. Did you say Genesis has seven steps? And, and John, John has, six. has six. So Genesis has more, but Genesis is the one that's incomplete? No. The creation of the world is incomplete. So the prologue describes an incomplete creation process, which is the correlate of <coughs> Genesis creation process. So Genesis says, well, here's how the world was created, and the seventh day it was done. And the prologue of John says, well, here's how the world was created, 
but it kind of ends on a leading note. And then the rest of the gospel kind of says, so this is the, so here is how it, here is the, let me tell you the story of how the creation of the world was completed in the work of Christ. Hmm. <laughs> um, I'm going to leave that open because I can't remember it all from memory. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory is the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, let's briefly talk about the symbol of the temple. The religious and social function that the temple served in first century Palestine was to make the presence of God personal and sensory and accessible. By going to Jerusalem and walking into the temple precinct, a Jew in the first century knew they were coming close to the presence of God. And the, the full presence in the Holy of Holies was only available to the high priest. But everyone, by getting close to the temple, knew that when they were offering sacrifice, or when they were giving prayer, or offering praise, they were offering it to the actual real presence of God. It was sensory, smells and sounds and you know, sights and all sorts of things that were, you could actually access it as a human being. Because God, in his and her fullness, is transcendent and not accessible to human beings. So the purpose of the temple is to kind of say, here's the portico, if you like, to the divine presence. The concern for, for Jews through the second temple period was always... How do I find wisdom? Where do I get access to God's wisdom? How can I find what is the right way to live and how I'm going to go about life? The Adonai begins in the in the sort of Genesis Exodus period as as utterly transcendent and as appearing sort of mostly sort of ambiguous signs and kind of voices in the night. And then gradually through the work of Moses comes to inhabit the Ark of the Covenant, the Book of the, the Law, the Torah, living in the covenant, in the Ark, um, and manifested as a, as a glory um, over the top of the Ark. And also in the Tent of Meeting, Moses would erect a tent outside camp um, where he would go to speak to, to God, but then also other people could go and sit in the, in the tent and speak to God. And God didn't appear in the tent, God appeared somewhere outside the tent. Um, so then eventually Jerusalem gets conquered and Jerusalem had its own. This was, you know, in the Canaanite period. There were lots of gods in the region. Um, and there's a sense in that, that sort of early stuff that kind of leaks through this sort of henotheistic kind of, you know, one, the greatest god amongst many gods kind of conception of, of Jehovah. yod heh vav um, of Adonai, to enter into Jerusalem as the conquering god. Uh, because he's, he's pretty warlike through this period, you know. It's, the, ark is, the ark is a war standard. The people carry the ark before them at the head of the troop of battle to conquer the, the opposing nations, right? Um, there's, various, uh, sort of, there's various sort of theological study around the way that the, the five books of Moses were composed and, and uh, the sort of source hypothesis, the multi-source hypothesis of the, the Pentateuch that, that's largely mainstream these days, if anything can be said to be mainstream in biblical theology, um, kind of has the God of Israel starting off as a, as a storm God, you know, top of the mountain, largely characterized by thunder and, and uh, enormous clouds, often appears as clouds, you'll notice, um, all the way through the Old Testament. Sorry, through the Hebrew Bible, I beg your pardon. Um, and that storm God kind of rolls in, you know, as a vast <laughs> conquering force into Jerusalem 
and becomes the one God, really, by just conquering all the other gods in the kind of early history of, of Israel. Jerusalem's conquered, and Mount Sinai becomes the dwelling place of God. And the building of the first temple by Solomon, um, I guess promised by David and then accomplished by Solomon, gazes at other people hoping for a nod. Yes? Yes? Wow, you're scary when you do that. You at me? Yeah. Oh, I'm I would, I would assume so. My New Testament's a lot better. Oh. Cool. No worries. <laughs> um, so the final building of the temple becomes a way of sort of uh, accommodating both the concept of the ark, the actual presence of God in the law, because, the, because Torah comes to live in the temple, and the tent of meeting, where, where you can come in order to ask questions of God and to, to uh, request things and to offer praise and so on. So the temple becomes the dwelling place of God. So the people of Israel, and you know, there's a few bumps on the road, there's the first temple, there's the invasion, there's the destruction, there's the exile, there's the return, there's the building of the second temple. But let's just pretend the whole thing's contiguous and call it the temple. So not. <laughs> Two phases are so completely distinct. But from a symbolic point of view, from the point of a first century Jew in Palestine, let's just say it's one temple. Um, the temple functions in first century Palestine as the, the kind of unambiguous, more or less, dwelling place of the God of Israel. So great. That's where we're at. What happens next? The question of what's being accomplished by Christ with respect to the symbol of the temple um, in the Gospel of John, I think, is interesting. So what Dr. Collo proposes, and this is a bunch of this is sort of theologically pretty uncontroversial, um, what's accomplished by Christ in the fourth Gospel is not God's humiliation, but God's incarnation. So God takes on flesh and becomes human in the fourth gospel. Um, also, to relate to that earlier concern, which you see through the wisdom books in the, in the kind of intertestamental period, if you like, in the sort of three, four hundred years in Babylonian exile, particularly during the exilic period and then the post-exilic period up to the, um, the time we associate with the, the ministry of Christ, what is wisdom? What is God's wisdom? How can I come to know wisdom? How can I understand how to live life? How can I understand what is good? And how life reaches its fullness? So as well as the incarnation of, of the divine per se, the Gospel of John tells us the story of the enfleshing of God's wisdom, of Sophia. And this is an interesting... So there's an interesting perspective in which God's wisdom, Sophia, wisdom herself, is transcendent in the exilic period. We know God's wisdom through what God has done, through how God speaks to us through Torah. From a Christian perspective, with the birth of Christ, wisdom takes on human form. So Sophia becomes Christ in that incarnate persona. Okay, so then we've got to answer the question, and then what happens after that, right? <laughs> but... What's being accomplished in the fourth gospel is a story that's being told us of how do we know God's wisdom? We hang with Jesus. To kind of give the game away, you hang out with Jesus. There's a guy. He is the actual incarnation of God's wisdom. If you want to know how life is to be lived to the full, there's this bloke from Nazareth. You should go hang out with him. The third thing is what's also accomplished is the gift of law, which is one of the classical gifts of 
um, Adonai in the Hebrew Bible, that Christ accomplishes the gift of giving of the law. How are we to know what to do? How, do we, how are we to know what is right behaviour? And finally, and kind of significantly, to kind of wrap this all up, to kind of carry on this, this notion from the prologue, what's accomplished in, in the story of the fourth gospel is a new genesis. Christ accomplishes an entirely new creation in which a new relationship between humanity and deity is brought to a, to a head. Pretty much kind of in the, very neatly in a narrative close of the whole gospel. There's a key point... Um, Dum-dee-dum-dee-dum. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That verb made his dwelling among us. I think I've got the right verb. Hang on. Yes. So the, the sort of literal translation, the sort of word-for-word translation from the Greek, and the word flesh became and tabernacled among us, eskenosin. So it kind of literally says, it doesn't just say, Jesus came to hang out with us, right? It explicitly uses the same word that in the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible is used to refer to the presence of God in the ark. So it's not just that, Christ comes to hang out, it's that Christ tabernacles amongst us. He dwells with us as God dwelt with us in the desert. Massenburg Ford makes a great deal of that tabernacle. I think it's just spot on. So the final, uh, John 1.16. From the fullness of his grace we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. So, that's the bit I didn't read out, <laughs> sorry, from the prologue. But um, that kind of summarizes, again, this is the kind of, this is the work of Christ in the fourth gospel. Kind of holding on so far? If you're kind of all right? It's all good? None of this is particularly controversial. And this is kind of... If you've come from a traditional Christian background, or if you've read traditional Christian theology, nothing that comes through this will be unfamiliar. But what's tricky is that what became the Orthodox slash Catholic tradition is the mixing of various views on who Christ was and what humanity's relationship to God was. And various aspects of one part of the New Testament came to hold sway over some parts of that and various came to hold sway over other parts of that. So most Orthodox and Catholic Christians lean on the Gospel of John for the notion that of the Trinitarian notion, the notion that Christ was God, that Jesus in his Christhood is deity. And then the rest of it's kind of like, eh, you know, <laughs> we'll go somewhere else. What, why did he get put on the cross? Well, we'll go to Paul for that and get some redemption theology, you know. What is he telling us to do? Well, we'll go to Matthew and we'll read all the parables as though they were simple statements of how you go, uh, to go, go down to the shop rather than treating them as wisdom teachings. And so each of the Gospels and the pastoral epistles and so on provide a, a sort of drawn on by the by the mainstream sort of Catholic tradition to provide different aspects of what became being a Christian. So being a from a Joanite perspective though, to me, we're kind of taking John undiluted. So we take I would make the claim, <laughs> gazes at bishops and waits for someone to say, No, that's completely wrong. <laughs> I would kind of say that um, that with respect to, to how we hold a Christian theology, we hold a Christian theology in the sense that we take what the Gospel of John says 
and we elevate it and turn the volume on John up to drown out, almost drown out everything else. So Matthew's still great because the parables in Matthew are just dynamite wisdom teachings that blow your brain open. And Paul's really handy in places. Paul says some terrific things. We still use Paul's teaching from Corinthians on love in the marriage service because it's just such a beautiful piece of poetry. Well, I think one thing that has to be remembered is that, um, and this is something that I'll go into a little bit more detail, but not much more because I'm no, I'm no scholar, I'm just a priest, uh, in the thing I'll be talking about for the community of John, but that, uh, you know, primarily the, the, the Gospel of John originally, you know, was first taken in by would-be heretics, by, you know, soon-to-be soon to Gnostics before it was taken in by what we would know as the mainstream church, and the thing that makes John accessible, acceptable to the the great church, which which is what Raymond Brown calls the, the apostolic church of the orthodox church, is because is only because it's viewed through the lens of the epistles right. later on that it kind of tempers some of those ideas that can be taken the quote-unquote wrong way, the way we take them, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you know, that, that without that modification, without the... Uh, you know, without the epistles, you know, standing next to the, the Gospel of John, interjecting every once in a while, well, what he really meant to say was, um, you know, the, uh, so we, you know, uh, we don't view, we don't view the Gospel of John through the lens of the epistles. We just view the Gospel of John. And that the, and that the epistles are useful to us as a kind of, oh, well, those are, this is kind of how the guys down the block see it. Um, you know, and that kind of contrast also serves to highlight the way we see it. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, and, and of course, the flip side of that is had it not been for the John on epistles and the acceptability, the final acceptability of the gospel in that context to the, to the Orthodox as, as the Orthodox Catholic tradition yeah. began to become preeminent, we probably wouldn't have the gospel of John. Mm -hmm. You know, it may well have been, it may well have gone the way of the gospel of Philip and Thomas, you know, and, and only sort of perhaps found in a cache at, near St. Pacomius Monastery in 1945, and perhaps not, you know, perhaps this great work would have been lost to us had it not been filtered through that more acceptable yeah. lens to yeah. kind of be taken up by the mainstream, so, you know. What Gospels don't we have? Um, yes, indeed. <laughs> are you saying, just taking it back to the, the Espinosa, are they saying that Jesus was effectively the tabernacle or the temple which partly contains the tabernacle, but contains parts that aren't the tabernacle, and therefore that are kind of more accessible in that way. Which I guess is that question of, is Jesus more of an avatar, mm -hmm. you know, in that sense? Mm -hmm. Or is Jesus um, is God expressing through Jesus, is the, is the flame of the divine spark incredibly strong in Jesus, although it's in all of us? And is there, you know, is it at such a strength, you know, from a tabernacle perspective, that Jesus is still a man? Um, I guess it's the tabernacle I, temple kind of... Yeah, and, the, and this is one of those places it. where um, the fourth gospel is... <laughs> it really resists being pinned down on specifics. You think you've caught it at a specific point at one point, and then a chapter later, it'll use a completely different symbol that opens meaning into a different direction. Um, in a way, I think we hold, we can answer that question in a, in a, in a more specific way, but let me, let me just stick with the gospel for a sec, if that's okay. It's, written, it's a Greek gospel, 
I mean, there's no one tries to pretend that John was originally written in Aramaic or something and then translated into Greek. It's a Greek gospel, but it expresses a profoundly desert.